0: Get it. Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Hello, this is Ken Root. This week I am joined by a gentleman I've talked to once before, His background is in the farm machinery business, but he's not really retiring from producing the future. In this case, it's people, I think, more than it is crops. Russ Green uh, comes from a background of uh, several ag equipment companies and uh, joins me on the phone. Are you in Lexington, Kentucky, or where are you now, sir? I am in Lexington, Kentucky. I just
1: got off an airplane last night, Ken, coming back from Colorado, where I was in a a client engagement in the dairy business. And I'm talking mega dairy. I'm talking 5,500 Holsteins in one operation with 62 robotic milkers.
0: Could you believe at the beginning of your 45 years of career that we would have such mechanization and automation that has changed our agriculture this much?
1: The quick answer is no, it really wasn't. And, and the longer answer, though, is I was probably not much of a futurist. I'm sure there were others that were engaged in both technology and agronomy and producing food that were certainly smarter than myself. And, you know, we were just starting to talk about auto guidance and such when I was, at you know, maybe in the field. And, you know, we, we thought it was a great thing to have a grain loss monitor, let alone have one that would tell you the, uh, the the quality of your grain and uh, the the moisture of your grain uh, capture historical readings uh, yeah and and I read an article I think that uh, either Farm Journal or Farm Equipment Magazine put out so you know the the growth of technology has never been this fast before and it'll never be this slow again so yes. it's it's with us to stay whether it's technology and animal agriculture like I just discussed with dairies or whether it has to do with technology on your moving equipment. It's uh, it's a pace of our life.
0: Russ, I just uh, finished up working uh, for about four hours on fishing shows, uh, which is kind of my retirement of uh, covering what's going on in fishing across the state of Iowa. And it ties in rather well with your early life. You sent me a little article the other day that said that Your nickname in high school was bait. I would think I'd punch the guy that said that, but that's actually not the way it went, is it?
1: No. And in fact, those of an Iowans that might be listening to this are probably smiling right now and they probably know me better as bait than they might as Russ green. But Yes, as a young man, our father our father was a policeman or a fireman. He would work 24 hours, be off for 48, and had all kinds of things that we could do together as a family, and fishing was one of them, Ken. And we fished so much, we had to find our own night crawlers, and we had some special places in churchyards and such. After a good rain, we could pick up our fair share. But my father let his friends know that we had them. So the next thing you know, they were knocking on our door saying, hey, we need some night crawlers. And at first that was a gift. We were pretty benevolent, but then it became obvious to us that they would, you know, they'd tip us to begin with. But then we said, well, rather than a tip, let's just set this up. So we put refrigerators in our garage. We put a milk cooler in our garage. We bought bait off of a truck by the thousands that came out of Canada. And mind you, we were only, uh, my brother was a year and a half older than myself, Ken, but we were like eight and 10, nine and 12, et cetera. And uh, his nickname, by the way, was Quack. At, at 11 years old, Quack was a state champion duck caller. And he repeated that another other year. So all my high school buddies, football, wrestling buddies, we all had nicknames. We had champs and we had cuddles. We had, we had every name under the book. But it's in our blood. In fact, I want to give a plug, and I don't want to take all your time, but I've got a second cousin in Wisconsin who probably catches more fish than anyone in the state of Iowa, Wisconsin. And he started a business around that called Drastic Plastics. So I won't belabor it, but you look at the the website that I sent you in the last 45 minutes and you'll get to know Scott Monroe, who's built a business around creating fishing lures. And he's forgotten more than I'll ever know about the bait business.
0: Well, I will uh, give him a call because it fits in real well with a couple of my podcasts here that I do for the fishing industry. And I love entrepreneurs. I mean, you really work for big companies, uh, for your career, but you seem to had that entrepreneurial spirit that was put into you by your father and you carry it forward. And I, I think it showed in the work you did.
1: Well, I I you know, I, I was educated at Northern Iowa to be a school teacher, school teacher and a coach. Mm-hmm. That's how I started my career and all in my career as a teacher and a coach. Uh, I was blessed by being invited into the industry of agriculture and and fell in love with it. And as you say, I was with multiple companies. And I think I said earlier that I was invited to go different places and I stayed where I was appreciated. And I kind of connected the dots. What I know, I learned from somebody else and uh, learned from observation. And if you like people, uh, you like the rigor and the relationships, and the passion that exists on, on a farm, a ranch, a dairy, it, it, it gets in your blood pretty quickly. As you well know, I mean that's your career and your background as well. There's no more noble society. There's no more noble society than the society of the people that bring food from the field and put it on your plate. And they're hard workers. They're hard workers. They love what they do. They love the land. They love their animals. They they love their state and their nation. They're just good people to work with when you have clients like that. It's
0: pretty easy to stay in an industry. I started my career as a vocational agriculture teacher. Uh, part of it was because I wasn't smart enough or applied myself enough to get through vet school at Oklahoma State University like I intended to when I started there. But falling back to OAG was a great thing because it educated me broadly, not deeply, but broadly. And then I had a ability to interact with people, I think, just like you do, only I'm not quite at your level. And as a result of that, I wound up teaching for two and a half years and then went on into the radio and television business. You are still teaching in many ways. Uh, You uh, speak to groups. Uh, Tell me about the six seasons of agriculture that you talk about with 4-H, FFA, and others. Well, I try and make visual
1: models that that make sense and are trying and simple. So as I started pivoting away from a W-2 form and, and selling tractors, combines, and planters, I said, look at what you've done and how you've done it. What, what makes sense? And one of the things I invested a lot of time in was with the FFA, a great group, and it, it needs no editorial from me. I think everyone on your broadcast will understand it. But when you stop and think, and I have a, a niece who's involved in the uh, uh, the county extension, business. And and she takes care of 4-H at our local community in Southeast Iowa. So 4-H has six and a half million young people that are involved in the 4-H. And I call that the first season. That's where you start to learn teamwork and responsibility and sharing and education. And then after about 14 years old, you, you become an FFA member. And if you've got a good advisor, like you probably were, you become very inspired. By that FFA advisor in your in your high school chapter, and there's about 860,000 FFA mem- Record levels at record levels. But we'll stop and think, we've gone from six and a half million down to 860,000, and now I work with a group out of Kansas City called AFA, Ag Futures of America. They may not like this, but I slangly refer to it, Ken, as an uh, FFA on steroids. It's a collegiate arm of these young people that are gonna invest their life in agriculture, and they're in chapters and groups at 200 universities across North America. They have a leadership conference every November in Kansas City, and the AFA is where I I invest time as an an executive ambassador, and we're really trying to feel that out as to what that really means, but I advocate for agriculture, I advocate for membership, I'll provide some scholarships of some young people here from Kentucky that I'll take with me to the leadership conference in November. But it's incumbent upon the dinosaurs like you and I to continue to advocate for the benefits of our career and the benefits of our our industry. And there's no easier industry to sell than agriculture. I mean, we all celebrate agriculture three times a day, some of us more than we really need to. And it's essential. It's absolutely an essential business I think agriculture was put on the headlines by COVID when people went to their grocery store and couldn't find the cut of meat that they wanted or the, even the paper supplies that they needed and kind of cocked their head and say, what's with this? You know, what's broken? And it just shows how fragile our supply channel is and that we can't take anything for granted. So we need competent, skilled, creative Professional people in agriculture because it's going to be just as challenging for the next generation as it was for yours and mine. And now you enter the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So you enter in your first job, and uh, you may like it and may progress your career. Uh, it may not be what you want, and you pivot to something else. But you, you're you're entering the job force. If you're successful and skilled and have have the 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 character to do it, you become a supervisor so you've gone from the three youth seasons to entering then mentoring and maybe for a 15-year a period of your life you're the capstone of your career you're mentoring other people under your supervision and the last and the sixth season is the one i'm in and that's where you reflect backwards and, and that doesn't mean you go off and grab a fishing pole and and, and take retirement that means that you share your experiences backwards into the other five seasons, whether it's people entering the workforce, people that are working in a mentoring and in a supervisory role, but uh, we we owe it to our industry to pay back. And so I pay back in two ways. I mentioned the AFA. And the the second way I pay back is I identified some millennials. And of course, 68% of the workforce is millennials today. So it's not hard to identify them, but I identified second, third, fourth generation young people that are moving into their parents' or grandparents' business, and they needed somebody to coach them. They needed somebody to help pick up the rocks off the road. So I meet with this group, which I call the next generation of ag leaders, once a month in a Zoom call. I monitor somewhere between 20 and 30 different ag inputs like yours, like podcasts of yours, and I synthesize those back into uh, a more bite-sized chunks that my millennials in the next generation and i call that group mccaben and mccaben was named after my first three grandchildren mac kaylee and ben so Mm -hmm. i fly under the umbrella of mccaben for youth Uh, i'm an executive ambassador for the afa but i still monetize myself myself and a partner george russell have a group called mac the machinery advisors consortium and there's 11 advisors and we coach dealers agricultural dealers construction dealers to higher financial performance. And as you can tell, I like the variety of it. Uh, The reason for me being in Colorado this week was to build a client scope there. I'll be in Utah next week and next month. I'll be in Nova Scotia. I've got Chicago meetings. So my wife is a very uh, patient, a a very good mentor and also a good spouse because she doesn't need
0: me to mow the lawn every day. Wow. wow, you are really really staying busy. I like the um your six seasons and the one that you call reflective or reflective back is a bit challenging to me at times because the uh, millennial generation is looking out for themselves and is weighted down by the responsibilities that some of them have taken on uh to the point that uh, being advised by others uh, may not be the first thing they're looking to get. Um, I wonder how you uh, get them to break down maybe a defensiveness. And That's a good really question. Listen to. That's
1: a good question. Sometimes we broad brush different groups, whether it's our greatest generation, our parents and grandparents, or our generation, the baby boomers. Then you go X, Y, Z, and now they have a name alpha for the, the children that are being raised. But I think we got to be careful not to stereotype because I kind of do a pretty selective choice when I pinpoint someone that I think has the leadership characteristics. I'll give an example of a young man in Iowa who started his own regenerative ag business, uh, Continuum Ag. And by spotting those kind of people that are a cut above, and, and they're usually, you know, you can find that in a state FFA officer, or a national FFA officer. You know, their parents may coach them and lead them and they're still their parents. Right. And and I don't know how you reacted to your parents, but my parents weren't always right. You know, but a third party can come in and say the same thing, lead in the same way, behave in the same way. And all of a sudden, mom and dad are pretty smart. And that starts to just round out their thinking. But you're right. And one of our a blessing and a curse. And you've already talked about technology. Is our. Uh, Everybody goes to bed at night with a computer 18 inches away from the rear called a cell phone. And some people use it and others let it use them. And when you get on an elevator today, uh, in the past, when you and I were at a convention, you used the elevator as a meeting room. You take a look at somebody's name tag and say, hey, you're from Nevada, Iowa. I went to school right down the street at Ames, Iowa. And you start a conversation. Today, everybody's putting their thumb on a, on a cell phone and looking down at their feet, and there's no social conversation. There, there's no interaction. Everybody expects a drive through fast food success and environment, and it's not that way. There's still a place for social interaction, there's still a place for conversation. And we, I'm rambling a bit, but everybody talks about sustainability. Ken, I think there's only two words. That describes sustainability and those two words are security and happiness and that security could be could be emotional security it could be health security could be financial security but there's only one word for happiness and if you're both secure and happy and that changes in your life whether you're in the first second third or sixth season of your life what makes you secure and what makes you happy changes but if you look at someone, I, I was on a Zoom call at noon today, and the gentleman looked like he just sucked a lemon. And I said, Arbnor, <laughs> you're not smiling. What's, what's with you? To do? Well, the weather's bad outside. Yeah, but you're inside and talking to me. So let's smile at each other and have a conversation. If you're not happy, you're going to reflect that on other people. So I think security and happiness, if you're, if you're in those two zones, that's a sustainable place to be.
0: We take so much for granted, though, Russ. That is a challenge to me as well as the younger generation that we expect things to be there. You know, if electricity goes off, people don't know what to do.
1: Ben Sass wrote a
0: book about parenting, the absence of the, of the American adult. And
1: your values are still built within your family. And the stronger the family, the stronger your values. And I think I think your character and your values are built with an individual before they're 19 years old. And after that, uh, what you do is you apply your values and your character and that becomes your style. Yeah. And if you had good role models, whether that be a teacher, whether that be a coach, whether that be a minister or a youth camp counselor, whatever it may have been, that helps you to understand that you have to be able to adapt and you have to be agile in that adaptation. And when the power goes out, uh, you still have to, you you got to manage that risk and you got to go to survive. And you, you're right. I've heard some of those same stories. Even my own grandson, we live just uh, three quarters of a mile away from my daughter and her family. I have to be uh, an unpopular grandfather every once in a while. When I say it's time to turn off the tablets, let's uh, let's have a dialogue, but they will, we, they will look at those as a parent, just like you had to monitor who the friends were and what the, the hours of uh, responsibility for curfew were when they were young. You've got to be responsible for what they have in their hands as a tablet. But there's no, there's no good substitute for a good parent.
0: Oh, I totally agree with that. You, uh, it's luck of the draw, uh, but it's certainly wonderful to be able to look back and realize that you had that, and it boosted you into who you are. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, who's the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. I've worked with them for the last 17 years and worn their hearing aids for that length of time, and I have had excellent results. Taylor, dementia is of concern of people as we get older, and I understand there are several modifiable risks that you can employ. Could you tell us about those?
2: Yeah, sure can. And so the studies were done by Johns Hopkins, um, Stanford, Cambridge University so world-renowned you know research centers and what they found was there are 12 risk factors that you can actually modify you know in your life now they broke it down by age under 45 45 to 65 and 65 and above under the age of 45 proper education so being well educated is the number one thing you can do under the age of 45 between the age of 45 and 65 obesity alcohol consumption, blood pressure, brain injury, and hearing loss. So the, between the age of 45 and 65 is actually, the, the number one thing you can do in that age bracket is actually treat your hearing loss. So it's not an age-related thing, so between 45 and 65. Over 65, smoking, depression, social isolation, air pollution, and when you talk about air pollution, it's not just being out and about in a large city. There are actually carcinogens in a wood burning stove that can lead to one hearing loss, but also um, things you can do for dementia. So it's not just out and about in large cities. Um, Lack of physical activity and diabetes. Um, It can actually prevent or delay up to 40% of the dementia cases by modifying these pieces. And when you look at all those 12 Nine of those are actually correlated to an untreated hearing loss. But the number one thing you can actually do out of all 12 and do it between the age of 45 and 65 is actually treat your hearing loss. So when they talk about hearing loss being a a very important thing, treating your hearing loss is the most modifiable thing you can do to help offset dementia. And wearing hearing devices or treating your hearing loss can reduce dementia symptoms by up to 75%. So studies are showing not only that hearing loss plays a clear, critical role in health conditions, you know, dementia being the, the biggest one, but also treating your hearing loss is not the number one thing you can do um, to help with dementia.
0: That is very interesting information. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can call them at 877 877- 955 4020. A good farmer will never forget 4020 as the last four digits. Or you can go online at iowahearing.com. This is Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root. Let's rejoin my conversation with Russ Green, a former executive of a number of major agri equipment companies, who now is doing his best to be able to. Uh, influence and encourage coming generations. One of the few people I've worked with of late who continues to keep track of me, and I am delighted when he calls, is a young man who was a farm broadcaster for a period of time, then realized he had greater talents. Uh, And he moved on to Washington, D.C. and did work for AgriPulse. And then he moved back to, to Des Moines. And he works as a lobbyist for the uh, Iowa Pork Producers Association. And so we had a conversation this week, uh, yesterday morning, and uh, he brought up this decision by the Supreme Court that uh, California could dictate how people raised hogs in Iowa. And uh, the pork producers at the national level fought this all the way. Uh, The poultry producers fought it for a while, How is it, in your view, as we move forward here, uh, one of the challenges we have that's restricting agriculture from producing food for the people is by people who really have limited knowledge of agriculture, and it appears even less appreciation. Yeah, you're
1: right. You're right. And let's back up a step. Let's back up a step with when we only have 1% of our society that's agrarian in nature and, and is somewhere involved in food delivery from production to processing, to transport, to retail and delivery, and 99% benefiting and eating from that, you got, first of all, the, the odds are against you. And specifically to that issue of the, the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the US decision on, on pork production, 13% of the pork goes into California. Mm -hmm. So now we're in a dilemma. Are we going to let Californians dictate the way a a Washington, Iowa pork producer has gestation crates set up for his sows so that they don't lay on the baby pigs and have a mortality rate? Are we going to let another state dictate the morals and the characteristics of our production? Well, on one hand, if you want to get that 13 percent production, you're going to change something. Or the people in California are not going to have a BLT. They're going to have an LT. There'll be no bacon on it. <laughs> and are they going to dictate how that happens? And, and it, again, consumerism and supply and demand will weigh out. I was, I was at a AAA, which stands for Animal Agricultural Alliance meeting in D.C. the week before that decision came down. And this alliance group is trying to be the truth tellers to protect the industry against animal activists. And again, that story, uh, the the sum of the matter, the outcome of that conference was we have to be offensive. If we wait and try and defend what we do in agriculture, when you're defending, you're losing. You're trying to explain something that somebody else feels as if they have the upper hand. So there's going to be some movement, I think, to try and educate society as to where their protein comes from, whether that's fish, poultry, pork, beef, dairy. That industry has to be, has to tell their story, but it's gotta be a tight story. And the story you tell on your podcast has to be the same story that I tell in my millennial group, has to be the same story that the the ag editors from Farm Journal or Lynn Henderson, we have to have a tight story. So we're up against the odds. And uh, when you have tragedies like happened in North Texas with that dairy environment, it leaves people a reason to shake their head if they're uninformed. And whether we're in our Bible study at church or our, I don't know, our bridge groups in the afternoon, somebody has to be the voice of reason and speak for the quality of the abundance, security, and safety of American food.
0: Well, if you are telling the truth, it's not hard for everybody to tell the the same story. And as a journalist, I've always found it that if you just search for the truth, you can't arrive at a consensus that everybody can appreciate and get along with. But when you polarize, like we have done in this country in so many ways, you have it to where one group does not talk to the other group. In fact, they disavow that the other group knows anything. That makes that uh, barrier a lot bigger.
1: Yeah, that's a bigger story. That, that's, you're, you're correct again, but a bigger story is how do we use common sense to be more civil and, and to return morality? But again, I, I think we put a heavy burden we have a we put a heavy burden on our teachers, whether they're in public schools or private schools, to educate that morality in, in the right manner. And that's why, again, I go back to the sixth season of agriculture, the reflection backwards. Uh, there's not a public school or private school in your community that wouldn't welcome a 45-minute discussion on where food is delivered from to young people that think that they can go to the Chick-fil-A and get a chicken sandwich uh, every day but Sunday. Or where, where does the milk come from this in your, your school lunch program? And uh, I'm, I'm sure they don't think about, you know, 55 Holste, 50, 100 Holsteins and automatic milking. But, but that's one of the beauties of technology as well. You know, through social media and, and videoing and, and uh, sharing, whether it's on an app or whether it's on Facebook or LinkedIn, whatever it may be, sharing videos and you know, share the success. And we just have to break down some of those barriers and they certainly do exist. And I think with no reflection on your industry, it's, it's a lot easier to spread bad news than it is good news. They resonate resonate with things that went wrong rather than things that went right. And so that's just the nature of our, our society. But again, if people are smiling, then they, they feel good about the experiences they're having. When you see somebody who's not smiling, whether they work for you or not, whether they're in your church or not, whether they're on your block or not, it's okay to ask, Hey, what what's not making you smile today? And you might be
0: surprised with the answer. Well, Russ Green, you, uh, you bring some presence and some a lot of reality and common sense to the issues that we discussed. And being reflective uh, back to uh, younger generations is a bit challenging for all of us, but... If you can do so and uh, you can find value and they can find value in what you say, I think you may be able to make them understand a little bit more and make everyone a little happier, uh, yourself included, and so it, uh, it can work well. I thank you for what you do and what you continue to do and the excitement you have in doing so, and uh, I'll keep up with you on LinkedIn and I hope that folks will write back and tell me what they think of our discussion.
1: We need to get a fishing pole together, friend. We need to get down the, gotta go down to the bank of the river and tell some stories to each other.
0: Thank you, Russ. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.